This morning, I'll be reading the scripture, which comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Keep your Bible open there to Genesis 3. We're going to finish up this series in the beginning. Today, and I know it was hard with J. Russ getting up here with that Buffalo jersey on. Yeah, we're going to give him grace, Johnny, because I love him and I do respect. I was saying to my friend Jim, he was like, I can't believe he wore that jersey in here today. And I was like, listen. If you and I relocated, would you expect us to wear Eagles jerseys wherever we were? And the, and the answer to that is yes. So while I simultaneously respect the brother for supporting his hometown team, I am a little torn here and wondering whether he needs a private rebuke. Go birds. Here we are at the end of Genesis 3. And if you listened while Megan was reading, you get a flavor for the tone of this text, this con- these concluding verses of chapter 3. In my Bible, the heading over chapter 3 is the fall. One of the things that's important, I think, for preachers is that whatever tone they bring in preaching the sermon, it ought to match the tone of the text. So the tone of this text is heavy. Sobering. So it would be odd for me to stand up here and begin to preach in a way that was all happy and joy without dealing with what the text says. Does this make sense? So this week... I was looking at some paintings on the internet. Paintings that have been done to capture what is taking place here in the fall. William Blake, famous, famous English poet, 
painter and printmaker from the late 1700s, lived largely unrecognized during his entire earthly life. So let that be a motivation to all of you artists out there. He lived largely unrecognized, wasn't famous at all, but then has he has become in history one of the most influential poets and visual artists of what is known as the Romantic Age. Well, anyway, I was looking at some of his paintings. And you should go look at them. He did a whole series called Paradise Lost. So it's a whole series of paintings that reflect on what we see here in chapter 3. I did bring one with me this morning. This is a painting that captures Genesis 3, verses 22 through 24. So in looking at it, you see Adam and Eve. You see the serpent. He's where he should be, on his belly now, right? And you see these imagery, maybe the four horsemen, colored in red. And then we see someone grabbing Eve and Adam by the hand and leading them out of the Garden of Eden. The Scripture tells us that it was God that led them out. I don't know what William Blake was doing there. I don't know if he's depicting God there or if he's depicting one of the cherubim that are mentioned in the Scriptures because the creature has wings. It's powerful, though. But this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this text. We're going to unpack it. We're going to try to keep the tone that it delivers to us, the flavor. But we're going to turn on hope this morning because the Bible always turns on hope. God's always up to something good. And it's right here. You just got to dig for it. All right? So let's get to work. Let's dig. We're going to start with straight talk about sin. Because <laughs> that's what is given to us by Moses, the writer of this text. Straight talk about sin. And when I talk about sin, I'm talking about missing the mark. I'm talking about how we fall short from the glory of God. I'm talking about the Bible saying that the wages of sin, of our wrongdoing, of our rebellion, of our lack of trust in God is death. That's what we're talking about when we talk about sin. So I want to just give you two things that we learn about sin here. Straight talk. Sin keeps us from life and sin keeps us from God. Sin keeps us from life. And where I'm getting that this idea of keeps us from is verse 24. Scripture says, the word of the Lord says, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. The cherubim was placed there 
that Adam and Eve might not get back in to the garden and eat of the tree of life. And I'll explain to you why that's important. Sin is the culprit here. Sin is the reason why Adam and Eve have suffered the consequences of their rebellion against their loving God and creator and are now ushered out of the Garden of Eden. Let's keep in mind that in Genesis 1 or in Genesis 2, prior to the fall in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve in a sinless state. That's hard for us to even imagine, right? Because we look at everybody around us. We look at the news. But if we're honest, we look in the mirror. It's hard for us to even imagine a sinless state. But this was the state they lived in prior to their rebellion. It was this promise of eternity, joyful, happy life in relationship with God, who is the source of life. So when I say that sin keeps us from life, it keeps us from God, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but sin keeps us from the life that God created and intended for all of humanity to enjoy. Sin keeps us from that. And they're driven out of the garden to earn their living by the sweat of the brow, we're told this, to bear children in pain, to die and return to the dust from which they were made. It's not a happy moment in human history. Now, we could get real confused. Some of you have questions about the trees that are being depicted. We've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then we've got this tree of life, and there can be confusion. I thought there was just one tree. What's going on here? But we're, we shouldn't get tripped up here. The meaning is not in the actual trees or their fruit, but what the fruit stood for, what the fruit represented. In one case, there was this promise, if you ate of it, of the knowledge of good and evil. If you ate of it, you would get that. Adam and Eve ate. They got knowledge. Satan was right. They got knowledge of this through their sin. In this case, in the second case, they weren't able to eat of the tree of life because if they ate of the tree of life, they would have lived forever in their current sinful state. If they lived, they would live as sinners. And what God wanted them to see is there is only freedom from sin. They could only be set free through a literal death and a literal resurrection. So he kept them, prevented them from eating of the tree of life. And all they knew they're driven out from. 
driven out from their, the life of bliss that they had and the enjoyment with God and one another, and they knew they would eventually die. Now this is a picture of all of us, apart from Christ. This is a picture. We go our own way in rebellion against God. We don't listen to Him. We, we don't trust Him. And we turn away from Him. And then we hide in our shame. We've, we've talked about this for weeks now. But what the Scripture reminds us, and Jesus actually reminds us, is that He, I am, Jesus said, the way, the truth, and the life. Sin will keep you from true life. How do we get access to, to true life once again? It's through Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says elsewhere in John's gospel, I have come, you know your Bibles, that they may have what? Life. So sin, sin blocks us from enjoying the life, true life, real life, that God created us to have with him. But, but Jesus said, I've come. I came to bring restoration to something that's broken. I came that you would have life. How do you get it? You have to go through Jesus. Jesus promises life. He's come that we would have life and have life to the full. Now, sin always promises that you will have life and have it to the full, but never delivers or doesn't deliver as promised. Sin always, sin's like the serpent. He always overpromises and underdelivers. But Jesus says that he's the way, the truth, and the life, that he's come, that we may have life and have life to the full. And Jesus always delivers on his promises. This means that we can be satisfied. If you're in Christ, your, 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 your heart has been deeply satisfied in what he has provided. And he says that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore and that you're going to believe this. You're going to enjoy Christ and his provision forever and ever and ever and ever. But if we don't have God, if we don't have Christ, if we will walk in that way, the scripture's clear, there's no life there. So here's my question that we have to deal with. How does sin, I'm saying that sin keeps us from life. How does sin do that? I mean, if you really walked around contemplating that sin wants to destroy you, then why would you do it? Am I alone up here, or is there a room full of people who know what it's like to not do the things they want to do and to do the things they don't want to do? 
And I'm, and I'm talking to people who are satisfied in Christ, who have put their faith in Christ. J.C. Ryle says, how powerful is sin that even, it being, even after being crucified with Christ still lives? I'm looking in the eyes of people who struggle with sin. I'm looking in the mirror. How does sin get us to bite? Deception. Deception. Because sin always overpromises and always underdelivers. What sin does is it hides the reality of its consequences by highlighting and emphasizing its pleasures. My sons and I have recently gotten into fly fishing. Fly fishing primarily for trout, who are, I think, the wariest of all fish. But if you want to catch a trout when you're fly fishing, you got to match the flies that are hatching on the surface and drifting downstream. If you try to throw a fly at them that is not from that geographic area, or doesn't look like what they're eating, you're going to have a fun day on the water, but you're not going to catch any fish. Why? Because in order to catch a trout, you've got to try to mimic, to replicate as best as you can the flies that they're actually eating. You've got to hide the hook. You got to disguise it. You got to use the right colors. You got to use the right material. And if you're good and your presentation is good, you can deceive trout. You can trick them into thinking that what they're swimming up to suck into their mouth is actually real. It's actually going to they're going to derive pleasure and benefit from it. But then they get the consequence, right? They get the hook in the mouth. Human beings are a lot like trout. What this portrait of Genesis 3, 22 through 24 should be doing for us, the way it's supposed to function for us is to allow our minds to run back to the real, true consequences of sin. That sin will keep you from life. This is what we need to remember when sin attractively hides the hook, emphasizing the pleasure without highlighting its consequences. Do you see this? Any sin that you're struggling with right now, I guarantee you, you're not thinking rightly about the consequences if you follow through. We do this with any sin. Any sin. People that have struggled in marriage, gone on to have affairs, they weren't 
any sin, though. They weren't thinking rightly about the consequences that would follow. Sin never comes to you and says, listen, if you pursue this, it's going to destroy everything you got. It doesn't say that. It comes and says, can you imagine how much pleasure you would get from this? That's what it says. What we have to do as Christians is to bring to mind, no, no, no. Sin, you're lying to me. The devil has been a liar from the beginning. And it takes the hope of the gospel to help us see that sin's promises are really empty. Easier said than done. Do you know the war? Do you know the battle? I know it. I'm... I've been following Jesus for so long. I'm standing up here preaching again today, and I know how easy it is to be deceived by sin's flattery and its deception. I know the war in my own soul. I'm convinced that this is why when the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he ended it by saying, lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So the Lord, when he modeled prayer for the disciples, he put that in there. He, he said, listen, when you pray, when you're praying to God, one of the things that you ought to be praying on the regular is that you ought to pray aware of sin's deceptive ability to tempt you and to lead you away. And you should pray, take me away, lead me. Man, if temptation's over there, Lord, lead me away. But some of us are living our lives like, man, I'd like to get a little closer to temptation. And, 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 and what Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, no, turn my eyes away from that. Like, pray that God would lead you in the, down the street that doesn't have temptation on it and deliver you from evil. J.C. Ryle says, until you've prayed, lead me away from temptation and deliver me from evil, you haven't prayed yet. So I ask, and I ask myself as well, when's the last time your prayers included, Lord, please lead me away from temptation and deliver me from evil. I'll answer for myself, not enough. Sin keeps us from life. Secondly, straight talk about sin. It keeps us from life. It keeps us from God. Sin keeps us from God. And I'm really grateful to James Boyce, Dr. James Boyce, who's a pastor in Philadelphia for many years. But his commentary here has really, really helped me. But if you're going to really appreciate this, you've got to understand some things about the cherubim. Pop quiz on cherubim. I bet you I could develop a quiz that most of you would fail. 
when I was little, when I was about eight years old, we used to heat our house with wood. My dad took me out probably when I was about eight or nine and showed me the chainsaw, the splitting mall, the axe. And then he taught me how to use all of those things. And I remember he said it this way. You don't know anything, son, about cutting and chopping wood. And he said, I'm going to learn you. <laughs> and he did. You don't know anything about cherubim. I'm going to learn you. All right? So you ready? Because you're going to have to dig a little bit. You're going to have to think a little bit. I'm not here just to entertain you. We're working. Right? We're working. We're trying to understand God's word. So cherubim. I think it's so interesting that this is our final sermon in the beginning, Genesis 1 through 3. We start Advent next week, the series title, Advent Through the Eyes of Angels. And I just think it's crazy that that's the way the Lord set it up. We're going to end this series talking about angels, and we're going to begin our series next week talking about angels. Didn't plan it. Angels, cherubim. Cherubim, a word used 65 times in the Bible. Only once in the New Testament. Once. I think it's fair to say that when the Bible speaks of the living creatures that are surrounding the throne of God that we learn of in Revelation 4 and 5, and we learn of that are flying around the throne of God in Isaiah 6 are similar creatures, if not identical creatures. But most of the references that we see in the Old Testament are References to the figurative representatives of what cherubim are. We see them, and we're going to look at this, at either end of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant of the Jewish temple. But here, we see them depicted... In reality, these are not representatives. He drove out the man, and at the east end of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword. These were not, these were not representative cherubim. They were the real cherubim. And so there's a few places in the Scriptures. We're going to read a few of them. So you've got to just listen to me or follow along in your Bible. The largest block of references to cherubim is found in a prof prophetic book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 10. Because here we also get a description of the cherubim themselves, not the representation. And Ezekiel describes cherubim, cherubim as always being associated with the glory and the throne of God. So the 
angels that we typically picture in Hallmark birthday cards or Christmas cards probably look very different than what Ezekiel is talking about. The, the creatures that Ezekiel is talking about who have responsibility for guarding the presence and the holiness of God are not creatures that are cute. <laughs> Anything that you would want to see, Anything that you would want to mess with. This is what Ezekiel says. Just listen. Close your eyes if it helps. I looked and I saw the likeness of a throne of sapphire above the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim. The Lord said to the man clothed in linen, go in among the wheels beneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And as I watched, he went in. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in. And a cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. The sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard as far away as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. As Ezekiel goes on, these were the living creatures. This is a reference we see in Revelation and in Isaiah 6. I had seen beneath the God of Israel by the Kabar River, and I realized that they were cherubim. Each had four faces, four wings, and under their wings was what looked like the hands of a man. <laughs> you confused? <laughs> it's a vision of the glory of God, which is hard for human minds to comprehend. It symbolized, it was a vision of his, of his presence. It symbolized the Shekinah cloud, the Shekinah glory. And it's with this that we always find the cherubim associated. Okay, a couple more. Are you with me? Revelation 4. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in the front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Isaiah, he saw a vision, remember? 
these living creatures, these seraphs. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So what's happening here? What are we to to learn from this? These cherubim, whether identical to the ones in Revelation 4 and 5 and Isaiah 6, that's not the question. I, I share Boyce's opinion. I think it probably is. These creatures are nevertheless always associated with the presence and the glory of God. So they're not like normal angels who appear here and there on God's errands. We're going to meet some of them in our Advent Through the Eyes of Angels series. They're doing God's bidding, but without God's special presence. They're scary too. But at this point, we see some of the meaning back in Genesis 3 starting to emerge. Because the cherubim appear and they drive, and they're driving the man and woman away out of the garden, then it is God Himself from whom Adam and Eve are barred. Sin keeps us from life, sin keeps us. From God. Now, what we need to see here is that this was not God's intended purpose for man. This was the consequence of the creature's rebellion against God. What has brought Adam and Eve to such a sorry state? Banished from the garden, which is keeping them from life and now keeping them from God. Sin is the culprit. What's the consequence of sin? Separation from real life and separation from God. From the one who is all love. So here's the lesson. Whenever you're tempted to think that sin doesn't matter, it does. I mean, it's really clear here. This is a sobering text of Scripture that shows us that sin really does matter. Whenever you're tempted to say that this this little one, ain't nobody ever going to know. I want you to think of Genesis 3, 22 through 24. No, no, no. Sin isn't just a trivial matter. Sin does matter. And the devil is wrong. And the flesh is wrong. And the world is wrong. And your buddies are wrong. When they say that sin doesn't hurt. You see what I'm saying? Sin disrupts everything. Everything. 
most importantly, the greatest of all relationships, your relationship with God, because sin keeps us from God. Now, enough depression. How about a little hope? Anybody need some hope? All right, how about a, a little break, too? And I've got intent and purpose with this. I'll show a picture of the eagles. And I'm going somewhere with this. So go ahead and put that picture up. This is a play right here taking place that the NFL is trying to, to declare illegal. It's got a name. People, people calling it different names. It's called the Brotherly Shove. Because we're from the city of brotherly love. It's also called the tush push. It's one of the most effective plays in football right now. I don't know what the percentage of effectiveness is, but when the Eagles get down to the end zone, they almost always score because they have the brotherly shove. And what the brotherly shove is, is basically get all of your linemen lower then the linemen that are trying to get to the football, trying to get to your quarterback, and push. And the whole thing just moves like one unit, and they just all keep pushing each other until the ball carrier lands in the end zone. It's extremely effective. Now this, I will say, it may be sacrilegious because I'm going to use the Eagles in a negative way. <laughs> And then what I mean by that is this. If you are, in this case, the Chiefs, you are trying to get through this blockade that is preventing you from being successful with your goal. So the question that the Chiefs should be asking is, how can I break through? How can I get through here? The question we should be asking this morning is if sin keeps us from life and sin keeps us from God, then the question that should be burning in your mind is how can I get through? How can I break through? I want life. I want God. But sin seems powerful. How do we get through? One word. Mercy. Mercy. And when I'm talking about mercy, I'm talking about compassion and forgiveness to the undeserving. It's something you can't merit. It's something you can't earn. If you could, it wouldn't be mercy anymore. It's mercy. Mercy. Sin is keeping us from life. Sin is keeping us from God. How do we break through? How can we find true life? How can we find a relationship with God? It's through his mercy. God, and I want to help you see this here, that right here in this passage of Scripture, we have a picture of mercy. And it relates to these cherubim. Because the cherubim are depicted when the temple is built, when the, when the tent was built, according to the instructions that God gave to Moses, and then the temple is built, we read of cherubim again. The cherubim 
where the presence of God, the holy of holies, they were representative, cherubim, on the corners of something that the scripture refers to as the mercy seat. The mercy seat. This is not where I expect to see. This is not what I expect to see after getting banished for our rebellion against God and, and his, his presence, these cherubim that represent his presence, his holiness, his glory, guarding the Garden of Eden so that men and women can't get back in there lest they eat of the tree of life and stay living forever in their sinful state is where we find the mercy seat. Let me just read one more section of Scripture to you. Exodus 25. you got to listen to this. See this kind of stuff? You get to this part of your Bible reading program, you start reading all about the temple and like all these parts. And I'm like, I'm so bored, Lord. But listen to this. Exodus 25. This is the Lord. Speaking to Moses, and this is a description of the Ark of the Covenant. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth. I'm going to read fast. A cubit and a half its height. You can read it later. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it. You shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it. Put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it. Two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Then you put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat. Do you see your Bible coming together here? The cherubim have to do with mercy. Now, these cherubim that are guarding the holiness and the presence of God are, are part of the mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, cubit and a half its breadth, and you shall make two, there it is, cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy, I'm skipping ahead. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in a commandment for the people of Israel. God, who is banishing them from the Garden of Eden because of their sin, which is keeping them from life and keeping them from God, is providing the mercy that's necessary for them to break through against sin's consequences. Salvation is all God, guys. All we do is receive it. The Ark of the Covenant actually reproduces the essential elements that we see here in Genesis 3, verses 22 through 24, and the presence of God's glory. 
So what should mercy lead to? What should God's mercy lead you to? It should lead you to repentance. It should lead you to to this place of, Lord, I need you, and I see what you have provided for me in Jesus. And so I'm believing. I want life, and I want what I was created for as a relationship with you. And in order to have that, Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. In order to have it, then I need mercy. And if I'm understanding my Bible right, you're offering it. Now, you can repent, which just means turn away from sin. You can repent out of fear. You can do that. If you repent out of fear, which is to have sorrow over the dangers of sin, which you can do. You can contemplate sin and think, oh, my goodness, if I do that, then this is going to happen. And when you repent out of fear... What it does is it bends your will away from sin, but your heart still clings to it. When you repent from a position of receiving God's mercy, then what happens is God actually gives you a right view of sin And you begin to see it the way he sees it, which is as disgusting. You start to see, wait a second, that sin's lying to me. Sin's being presented as attractive, but it's actually disgusting. That's the difference between fear-based repentance and mercy-based repentance. Mercy makes the sin look ugly and disgusting. Mercy makes you say, this thing is offensive to God, and it's the thing, this thing is what put God on the cross, and by entertaining this, by indulging in this, I am continuing to stab the Savior with it. See, that's different, right? That's that's repentance from the heart. So, we've talked about how Sin keeps us from life. We've talked about how sin keeps us from God. And we've talked about what provides the breakthrough. And it's the mercy of God. And when we started this series, many weeks ago, I don't know if you remember this sermon, but my opening illustration was one about Blockbuster. Please remember to rewind. Johnny remembers. Sometimes I said it's good to rewind and remember your history. And Genesis 1 through 3 reminds us, rewinds and reminds us of human history and our history with God. And I shared with you, there were five benefits, I believe, that we would derive from a study of Genesis 1 through 3. I wonder if you remember any of them. I'll help you. I said that A study of Genesis 1 through 3 would give us, one, a great sense of God. I believe that Genesis has done that. I believe today we got a sense of God. I said that a study of Genesis 1 through 3, one of the benefits would be that it would frame doctrine and hang it in the walls of our minds. 
I believe that we've experienced that. I said that Genesis, just looking at Genesis, would touch on some of the hot-button issues of today. We've done that. We've touched on some of those things. Fourthly, I said one of the benefits would be to put perspective on our lives without emptying them of significance. I hope that we've been able to do that as preachers, to show you the depravity of man without emptying our lives. Man is brutal, but he's also beautiful. I hope that we've been able to carry that tension. And fifthly, I told us that one of the benefits of studying Genesis 1 through 3 is that it would point us to Jesus over and over and over and over again. I believe it's, I believe it's done that. And I, for one, am very thankful for this study of God's Word, and I hope you are too.